Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's time to go for a ride. But please, keep the car at home. Instead, take that bike out for a spin. This week, we're going to learn about the rise of cycling in the city. We'll find out what has led to the increase in popularity and how a change in mindset and mathematical modeling could lead to an even greater explosion. And in our SAS class, we're going to take a look at e-bikes and find out whether they are the next best thing or just another fad. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetra. I'm going to get your mental gears moving on the reasons for riding on two wheels instead of four. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you're in any urban center, you're no doubt going to notice that cars and buses aren't the only vehicles on the road. Bicycles have seemingly exploded on the scene over the last few years. You might think this has been a revolution of sorts, and in a way, it has. Just look at the statistics. Over the 20-year period of 1994 to 2014, the number of cyclists rose from about 6.5 million to 7 million. This actually represented a reduction in the percentage of people choosing to bike. But over the last five years, something happened that led to that explosion. By 2017, just three years later, the number had jumped to over 11 million. By the time we have our next assessment in 2021, that number may be even higher. Granted, the actual percentage of Canadians choosing to use bicycles as their primary means for transportation still pales compared to some of those well-known cycling regions like Amsterdam and its fierce competitor, Copenhagen. But based on the promise of the statistics, we can ask whether Canada could transform into a biking nation, or at least have a few cities that can rival those European counterparts. Our first guest can help us answer that question. Her name is Megan Winters, and she is an associate professor in health sciences at Simon Fraser University. She's been following trends in biking behavior and may have the answers we need to make Canada a cycling country. How has the perception of cycling changed in Canada over the years? I think we used to think about cycling more as a sporty event. So we would see road cyclists in spandex with helmets on racing around on our city streets. And that's what people thought cycling was. And in recent decades, we're seeing people on bicycles for all sorts of purposes, to do their daily shopping, to get to school, people who are wearing regular clothes from all walks of life. We start to see our elected officials on their bicycles as well. And we're also seeing really different types of bicycles. So if you look around on our streets in the cities today, we see cargo bikes that might have boxes to carry kids or gear. I'm seeing more and more electric bikes that are allowing people to take longer trips. And we're seeing bikes that are parked on our city streets as bike share programs pop up in communities across Canada. So it's becoming a really different kind of picture as to what people can use bicycles for, not just speed cycling on our city roads, but also just to get around in our daily travel. And we do see more diversity in terms of the kinds of people who are cycling. We now start to see 
kids, you know, on downtown streets, even on protected bikeways, getting around. There's more and more women. You know, if we go back two decades in 1996, only a quarter of the people cycling were women. And these days, when we look at our streets, it's up to a third of the women who are cycling. So we still see more men than women on bicycles, but that's changing in time. Is this common across the country or are we seeing it mainly happening in urban centers like Vancouver or Toronto? The most data that we have uh, for comparing levels of cycling is to look at our census. So that tells us how many people report cycling as their primary mode for getting to work every day. It's just about commuting and it's just if that's your main mode. Looking at the census data, 1.4% of Canadians use bicycles as their main mode to get to work, which seems like a low number. But it's really variable across the countries. In some neighborhoods in our big cities, in Vancouver and Toronto, we see upwards of 20% of people who use this as their main mode. Cycling can also be really high in some of our mid-sized cities where trip distances might be shorter, people live closer to work. Victoria is a great example of that. In the city of Victoria, 11% of commuters use bikes to get to work. And another interesting place to think about in the Canadian context is that we're seeing high rates of rapid growth in other types of communities. So towns like Canmore, like Tofino, Revelstoke, Whistler, places where there might be a real interest in mountain biking or recreational cycling. And you see that spill into people just using their bikes to get around on great trail networks that might exist in these communities. Is it really a factor of our perception that's leading to an increase? Or are we seeing other infrastructure or maybe even weather-related changes that could be helping people to pick up a bicycle as opposed to driving the car? We do see that there's been an increase in bicycling for commuting or for other purposes. In fact, if you look at the data from the census and from cities travel surveys, cycling is the fastest growing travel mode. So it's growing faster than public transit use and car ridership. It's starting from a lower level, to be clear, but we see this rapid growth in terms of it. So I would say that that perception is really translating to more people using bicycles to get around in our communities. When you look at school travel, you know, we haven't been seeing an increase in the number of kids cycling to school. So there is promotion and education programs out there working to get see more kids using their bikes to get to school. It's important to note that at a lot of the schools, we see kids walking to school still. So whether it's walking or cycling, they're still getting to school in healthy ways. The other thing when we think about is, are we seeing changes in cycling to school amongst kids? The way a kid gets to school is very much a decision that's complicated by how much time a parent has, where that parent needs to be, and how that parent travels to get to places. So if we want to see kids cycling to school, we also need to need to make it possible for the parents to get them to school by bicycle and get on to their own workplaces and daily activities. And what about safety? How does that play a role in that decision to choose a bike over a car or a bus? Safety is by far the biggest barrier to cycling. And you hear it especially when people talk about cycling for all ages and abilities. So there's some people who are comfortable cycling on roads with motor vehicles in any kind of conditions, but that's a really small segment of the population. So if we want to see more people cycling more often for more types of their trips, we need to think about uh, building our communities so that those types of people feel comfortable cycling uh, and feel willing to get on their bicycles instead of a car or a bus. So safety is the critical piece in order for us to see more cyclists on the road. And some communities, a lot of communities in Canada now are tackling that head on by building bicycle facilities that people feel safe on and that are safe for them to travel on. So those kinds of facilities look like 
cycle tracks, the protected bike lanes that we see on downtown major streets. And in Canadian communities, Vancouver has been working on a network of protected bicycle facilities downtown for a decade now. We've seen Victoria do a big investment that they've been building in the past five years. And just this past month, Halifax announced $25 million to go into building a downtown network. So cities are responding to create communities where people of all ages and abilities can get to the places that they need to go. Do you see us ever getting to the point where bikes are going to be as common as they are, say, in Copenhagen? (laughs) I think absolutely. This was not always the famous cycling city that it is today. So right now in Copenhagen, 62% of citizens cycle to school and to work. That's nearly two thirds of the population using that. But it wasn't always that way. Yeah. In the 1970s, they started to notice through the 1950s to 1970s, they started to notice that there was a lot of car travel and that was the primary mode that was growing within Copenhagen. And there was really progressive policy and advocacy to make a shift. So they started car-free Sundays, They did a massive infrastructure investment, a lot of promotions, both carrots and sticks, to create what we saw to be this massive shift towards bicycle travel. So to get back to your question, do I ever see us getting to a point where this is possible? It's absolutely possible. It takes a multifaceted approach. So it's going to take policy that encourages people to cycle. It's going to take conditions like our increasingly congested cities where we decide that it takes too long to get there by car. And so those kinds of levers are in place and those are the conditions in place that are making people start to realize that it's time competitive or it's economical to get there by bicycle. And the cities need to ensure that it's also a safe and available choice for them to get there. So we have seen a lot of success in our Canadian cities. Maybe I just highlight, I'm from the city of Vancouver, and they set out a goal to have 50% of their trips by sustainable modes, so walking, transportation, or cycling, by 2040. And it turns out that they've already achieved that goal. So they've had to reframe it now to shifting towards that sort of two-thirds of trips by sustainable modes by 2040. And so I think in Vancouver, and there's other examples of this in cities across Canada, where the growth is really taking off right now in terms of the number of people cycling. And if we continue to provide communities where it's easy and safe to get around by bicycle, I think we can rival those global cycling cities. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Making Canada a biking nation is not an easy task. Several obstacles like, say, weather, traffic density, and distance can really slow our roll, especially when it comes to commuting to work. But over the last 20 years, Statistics Canada has revealed that the number of people choosing to commute by bike has increased by 87.9%. 
Some places like Vancouver, as you've just heard, have had dramatic increases, while others have seen modest but noticeable gains. Figuring out how to get people to choose two wheels isn't just a matter of marketing and public service announcements. Governments need to figure out how to deal with the obstacles, both known and perceived, and develop action plans to make the environment more bike-friendly. But this isn't something that can be done on a whim. After all, these changes cost money, and you must deal with the backlash that come from people who are inconvenienced by changes, such as businesses during construction, drivers who lose their lane to allow bikers safe passage, and of course, pedestrians. To make sure they have it right, city planners call on people like my next guest. His name is Kanker Nurul Habib, and he is a Percy Edward Hart Professor in Civil and Mineral Engineering at the University of Toronto. He has been researching how we can develop sustainable transportation through the development of mathematical models that help us figure out how to make cycling more attractive and also safer. What are some of the obstacles to choosing a bike over some other mode of transportation? I would classify the obstacles into two categories. The first one is the hard one, and the, the other one is the soft. Hard one is the travel distance. Uh, you know, there's a limit someone can bike, and that limit varies within a range, but typically it's 7 to 15 kilometers. That's the widest trend you can think about. In some cases, it could be 10 kilometers. If, if your travel distance is longer than that, even if someone is willing to bike, it may not be feasible for him or her to choose bike for, uh, you know, as a travel mode over the other modes. So that's the hardest constraint. And there are lots of soft constraints. And soft constraints are, well, uh, someone has to uh, have the willingness to, to bike. And the willingness to bike comes from or influenced by many factors. And the factors are basically through the perception and many other variables or you know, external variables that influences those perceptions. The typical perceptions are, you know, safety perception, comfortability, and stuff like that. Over and above, someone's willingness to bike, given that the trip length is, is within the limit, uh, is influenced by those factors, and those factors are shaped by the place and the city the person is living in. So there's obviously a lot of factors involved, yeah. and your yeah. research has developed, and I'm going to try and say this right, a heteroscedastic polarized logit model to be able to help mm -hmm. us understand how those variables affect our decision to ride a bike. I'm barely yeah. able to pronounce this. Can you tell us a little <laughs> more about what this happens to be? All right. Uh, let me tell you, when, uh, when planners or engineers uh, design infrastructure, like, you know, you decide on um, setting aside a lane for bikes or you decide to invest in, in bike infrastructure. Those kind of, you know, the infrastructure decisions requires you evaluate your actions before you implement or even make a decision about it to make it cost effective, right? So we call it evidence-based planning. So for evidence-based planning, uh, only way you can evaluate an action that is not implemented yet is having some sort of artificial tool to allow you to evaluate its impact. So there's come the, the role of models. So models are nothing but mathematical equations that tries to capture choice behavior of people in terms of choosing mode of transportation. So a logic model is very commonly used uh, a model in, in, in transportation demand forecasting where alternative modes are evaluated based on attributes like you know traffic speed you mentioned, uh, whether lane there is separate lane or not, what is the weather, and whatever attribute you can you can quantify. So logic model is a mathematical equation that captures the competition among the modes. Now, 
the standard logic model that's a typically used for evaluating infrastructure decisions like you know whether you're going to put a bike lane or not whether you need a bike lane to encourage biking or not it does not take care of the fact that there are existing market share of those modes like for example typical bike model share in in not in canadian cities are less than 5% now if you use a standard logic model and that 5% is ingrained in the system uh, it's very difficult to to evaluate or to come up with a bike infrastructure policy that will be justifiable because market share is real, relatively low and logic model bases is forecast based on existing market share so what my model actually does it takes care of the fact that you could have a low market share of an alternative but that does not influence actually its forecasting capacity you can change it so that the polarized term polarization comes from the fact that your forecasting of modal competition should also take care consider that there is an existing market share that may influence your forecasting and the term heteroscedasticity comes from the fact that the the competition across the mode also varies based on context like you know on a particular street could be different from another street one weather condition could be different from another condition overall fact is that it will allow you to to play with the infrastructure decisions that need to be unbiasedly evaluated giving a very simple example right if you go a city there is no bike lane nobody is biking and if you try to implement evaluate a, a bike infrastructure policy it will not come out effective at all i mean it will not be justifiable because your existing logic model or any any model you use for evaluating alternative policies will tell you it will not gain any market share in future because your existing market share is zero now if you really put a bike lane for example or a network of bike lanes and wait few years and you do see the people will come and people will use biking so existing model will not evaluate that will not capture that so we try to come around with that and this model heteroscedastic polarized logic will take care of existing market share and pivot it against your future forecasting so this will give you an unbiased result of future outcome of any infrastructure decisions and we need this type of model to evaluate you know the bike and and active mode transportation which are currently having very low market share so with standard modeling approach that planning agencies are being being used these type of modes are always uh, penalized because of their existing market share so this model try to overcome what would be the single most important factor or maybe two or three factors that can help us increase the number of people adopting bicycling as their primary mode of transportation i would say there is no single i mean there is no magic bullet i would say there multiple policies would be necessary just to talk a little bit about more along with this heteroscedastic polarized logic model i also have done other modeling exercises where we took care of the fact that people are influenced by social uh, interactions like you know you're going to be influenced by your friends behavior or if you would be willing to take a risk and take your bike out in low temperature if you see other people are biking that temperature too, which i call like a social interaction effect so i would say to be effective or to if you really want to increase the bike modal share in any cities you need a multiple policies combined together which has to be symbiotic and first and foremost it would have to be the infrastructure policy like you need you need separate bike lane 
you need bike path, you know, you know, separation, some sort of separation. You have to give equal right of way to all modes. Like, you know, when you bike on the street, you literally occupy very minimum space on the road compared to a car. But if you think about you would drive, you would space more space, pollute more. So considering the externalities and, and equity perspective, bike users are very vulnerable because compared to mechanized traffic. So they deserve to be separated and they deserve to be uh, having separate right of ways kind of thing. So infrastructure related policy, bike lane, bike infrastructure are must, has to be there to, to allow bike to be uh, competitive. And again, if you just put infrastructure in there and people are very much uh, influenced by social behavior, we also need social policy. So kind of like a social marketing. So one research I have done in Toronto where we looked at students' behavior, especially university students' behavior. What we noticed in that in Toronto and many North American cities, typical biker populations are basically adult males, not females. So females are not biking as much as we expect them to be. And so my research looked at what influenced a female student to bike. And one of the things we found out uh, is a female student, university student in Toronto, sees another female university student biking. It influences much more than even, even some of the infrastructure policies out there. So uh, what we realized then, just on the infrastructure will not, will give you a certain limit, but will not beg the deal. So we need multiple social um, policy there too. I mean, social policy could be bike incentives, you know, bike promotion. Those type of soft social policy can take infrastructure to a long way. It's SAS class time. And today we are going to look at what could be a revolution for the biking community. E-bikes. They have an electronic motor that assists in pedaling and can make the ride less, well, sweaty, especially on those hills. But do they represent the tipping point that will make Canada a truly biking nation? Our guest teacher is about to help us find out. He's Alex Bagazzi, and he is an assistant professor in the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of British Columbia. He's been examining the effect of e-bikes on biking behavior and how this could change how we see and ultimately use bicycles in the future. Quickly tell us about the advantages of e-bikes over conventional ones, perhaps other than ones that we kind of already figure. Starts out with what you figure, which is that it provides pedaling assistance to the user. Now, how people use that depends on uh, who they are and what they're doing. For some people, that means they get to spend less energy, which means they sweat less. For other people, it means they get to go faster. For other pe- some people, it means they go farther. Some people, it means they go up hills easier. So there's, there's various ways people use that benefit uh, individually for the riders. For, from a systems perspective, what we're hoping the benefit is, is that e-bikes reach a broader segment of the population and that we can make cycling more attractive to wider diversity of people. What demographics are you looking at? The potential for e-bikes are, is very broad, and there is an enormous variety in who we see using e-bikes right now. Some might be who you might imagine the stereotype of an e-bike rider to be. In general, people seem to assume that they, are, they tend to be older and wealthier, and that does certainly show up in some studies, but that is not at all consistent across studies or consistent across riders. E-bikes tend to be used for utilitarian purposes, commuting and whatnot, but there's a lot of people using e-bikes for recreational trips. 
kind of exploding in the mountain bike scene right now, which is a, a bit of an issue in terms of trail usage. But we, we see a lot of different people using e-bikes in various places and for various reasons. We hear about this length that seems to be the limit for the decision to use a bicycle. 10 kilometers, 20 kilometers, whatever it may be. We would imagine that e-bikes would give us the opportunity to get past that and go a bit further on. But there's still that idea that you are on two wheels and you're in the middle of open air. You're not protected in a bus or a car. I'm not sure if I'd want to even have an e-bike if I'm wearing a suit. Is that an issue? E-bikes are not going to solve some of the discomforts of cycling in general. At the end of the day, uh, you're still exposed to the weather, which is a huge barrier in many, many parts of the world. Most of the safety concerns that many people have, very reasonable safety concerns, are still there on e-bikes. You're still sitting on a fairly small saddle, which can be quite uncomfortable over long periods of time. So there's there's a lot of discomfort. And so I don't think anyone sees e-bikes as uh, totally transforming urban mobility on their own, but there is this idea that with this additional kind of vehicle within the um, suite of cycling options can expand the reach of cycling somewhat. I've seen a few e-bike models that look like motorcycles and they go fast. And the whole idea (laughs) that you just talked about with, you know, mountain biking with e-bikes kind of blows my mind. What are the risks of using an e-bike when you no longer have control over how fast you're going simply because it's now by a motor. I would disagree that you don't have control. There's quite a lot of control by the rider over the speed. So there's a couple points here. So one is the speed of e-bikes. So what do we see? So in general, we see uh, e-bikes going 10 to 30% faster on average than other cyclists. But there's an enormous variety in in cycling speeds. E-bike speeds are limited by regulation, can't be going faster than 32 kilometers an hour here in BC, and that varies by province, by country as well. There are many people cycling faster than 32 kilometers an hour on flat roads or on downhill. So I don't think speed alone is the issue. I think perceptions of speed can be an issue for sure. But what we're mostly concerned about in terms of speed is differences in speed. So while the absolute speeds are not too different from regular cycling. What we are concerned about in terms of safety is the variability of speeds on cycle paths. So you have some people going quite slow, some people going quite fast, and that's where you can get some conflict between users, especially on off-street paths. I'm shocked that it's only 32 kilometers per hour. When I had my 10-speed, I would be going faster than that all the time. That seems to be slow, perhaps, maybe to the younger generation, and maybe that might be one of the reasons why it's an older demographic that's using them? That's one of the key questions is is what's the appropriate designation for motor limits on an e-bike? So we have limits on the amount of power and the speed as well. Those vary quite a bit. In Europe, they have something called the speed pedelec, which can go faster, up over 40 kilometers an hour. It's a trade-off, right? You might, they might get more appealing if they go faster, but then you create even more conflicts between road users. What is the best speed? Uh, well, so, I mean, that's an open policy question. And, and to be frank, the thresholds we have right now for what defines an e-bike versus an electric motorcycle, for example, is fairly arbitrary. We kind of align our standards here in, in Canada with roughly what's in most of the United States, but there's still a lot of work to be done to determine kind of what's what's the most appropriate maximum speed for an e-bike that's going to kind of capture the benefits while not creating undue conflicts. I do have to bring up the fact that there are going to be detractors who are going to say that an e-bike 
means that we're missing out on the physical exertion of a conventional bike. What about e-bikes gives you yeah. that positive as opposed to, like I said, the negatives that come with not exercising? It's, it's all about what's the alternative, right? What's the counterfactual you're comparing it to? And, and so, so first of all, the early research shows that when you're riding an e-bike, you are getting some moderate level of physical activity, which is kind of on par with going on a walk. So it's a moderate level of physical activity, which most of the health evidence shows is enough to kind of get us into the expected range of significant health benefits from physical activity. But we do see that there is less exercise than riding a conventional bicycle. So yeah, it, it does depend on whether you're, you're thinking of e-cycling as an alternative to cycling or an alternative to driving a car. And that's why mode substitution, what we call it, meaning what, what, is, what would people be doing if they weren't riding an e-bike is the biggest question for what are the impacts of e-bikes. It's an area with a lot of research. Interestingly, it, it varies enormously by, uh, by continent, by location. For the early studies coming out of East Asia, where e-bikes, e-bike market first exploded, we saw a lot of substitution of public transit, for example. And e-bikes were kind of seen as a transition towards auto ownership because of affordability issues. But that's quite different in North America where we see greater substitution of auto mode, likely because autos are so dominant in North America. But still, it's all about what you're comparing it to. So someone riding an e-bike is getting some, some exercise, which is definitely better than a completely sedentary commute, which is essentially what you get in an automobile. And, and, and I'll just also point out that uh, the latest kind of health research on physical activity shows it's not just the amount of physical activity that you get, it's also avoiding sedentary activity. And like I said, an e-bike gets you that at least minimum level of uh, physical activity. Do you ever see us getting to a point where we may end up being like Hanoi or Bangkok? Where, <laughs> I mean, for them, it's scooters, but maybe we have yeah. e-bikes everywhere. And now you have to worry about those instead of cars when you're crossing the streets. <laughs> right. I'll be honest. I see e-bikes as not a revolutionary technology. I see them as an incremental technology that's going to expand the scope of cycling. I wouldn't say that e-bikes alone are going to do that. I think it's possible to get there, but that's going to take a massive shift in, in our investment in infrastructure and, and how we construct our transportation systems, right? So right now we're, we are not seriously investing in the kind of infrastructure that's going to get masses of people cycling. And without that infrastructure, people just aren't going to do it, whether it's got a pedal assist motor or not. The e-bike technology can help reach a little bit broader spectrum of the population. But in our research, what we've shown is really still the biggest thing to get people biking on regular bikes or e-bikes is having safe cycling infrastructure. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it's going to get your brain spinning about taking up bicycling in the future. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And we want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show, usually as themes. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. 
The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Deal of Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.